0: Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Seth. And I'm Zach. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers.
1: We are the Classic Gaming Brothers.
0: We are.
1: We are. We are. We, we are. are. We are. Classic Gaming Brothers. Yeah. Yep. Just yep. another episode fabulous. <laughs> episode
0: yeah, It is episode 60. Yeah. I was actually thinking I was gonna be like just another just another episode coming along through the the old episode pipeline. But episode 60 is actually a pretty important Episode, I think.
1: I think so. I think so.
0: Twice as much as 30.
1: More than halfway to 100.
0: That's true. Do we have something special planned for our 100th episode?
1: Not yet, but maybe we will.
0: That's true. We don't plan very well. No. Anyway, speaking of planning, what have you been recently been playing?
1: Well, that was a great segue, Seth. I have recently been playing Sonic Lost World, which is an action adventure game in the Sonic series, as the name thoroughly implies. Uh, Sonic Lost World was originally released for the Wii U and 3DS in 2013. I am playing the pc version which was released in 2015 on steam in the game you play as get this sonic the hedgehog and you have to fight a group of evil bad guys called the deadly six
0: like the sinister six from spider-man
1: yeah except these ones look weird i guess more
0: i mean the sinister six from spider-man look weird too you have the likes of scorpion and chameleon rhino now i just need to see if i could do it vulture doc ock and shocker
1: Boom anyway six sinister six the um the uh deadly six are like a group of like aliens that initially team up with dr robotnik and then they turn against dr robotnik so you have to team up with dr robotnik because it does that kind of twist in the game it's okay it's not really a good sonic game it's not a bad sonic game i've played worse sonic games i've played sonic 06 for the playstation 3 and xbox 360 it plays slower than other sonic games because there's more of an emphasis on parkour and parkour. branching pathways some people have described it as the super mario galaxy of the sonic games because the maps are all like round and they're not really linear and you can like spin around in circles and some of the maps have like their own gravity so like in super mario galaxy where you have like micro planets the weirdest thing is that there is a run button which you don't really expect for in a sonic game because sonic is all about running you'd expect sonic to always run always run sonic run no, in this you have to hold a button to run. A little strange. Does he have stamina? No, so it's kind of pointless.
0: Oh. Is there a toggle
1: for it? No, so That's it's kind rough. of pointless. It's like very pointless because you're always holding it (laughs) because if you don't he goes slow
0: i uh i feel like sonic the world should just be an adventure game that plays like a telltale game with cell shaded graphics and quick time events
1: there was a sonic rpg game that was made by bioware maybe that'll be my next game that i play you haven't played that yet oh i've played a little bit of it but the uh (laughs) real quick the sonic rpg game played made by bioware is called sonic dark chronicles no dark brotherhood and it was no (laughs) it's called dark chronicles i think Or was it? called dark brotherhood it's it might be called dark brotherhood which would be hilarious because that is also the name of the bad guys in skyrim anyway they 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 wasted all of their budget working on the game and apparently they ran out of budget by the time the music came into play so the music in that game is all placeholder midi music and it sounds terrible
0: fun fact you were right twice Ooh! it is in fact the sonic chronicles colon the dark brotherhood
1: excellent anyway sonic lost world is an okay sonic game A great Sonic game. I'm I'm enjoying it. I've been wanting to play through, like, all the Sonic games that I never got to play through growing up, and this was one of them, uh, because I was just entering college when this came out. I didn't have a Wii U.
0: So, recently, I have been playing a game called Not Tonight.
1: Have you been playing that tonight?
0: Not tonight, but... Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a game by Panic Barn that was released back in 2018. It takes place in a sad, kind of dystopic near future where essentially politically things are bad, but the technology hasn't gotten any more advanced. So you're still using like broken cell phones. Not broken like it doesn't work, like broken like the screen is cracked. You play as a European who is living in England and is trying to not get deported. And in order to not get deported, you have to work and pay money to the people who are like the the police essentially you have to pay them bribes and you have to pay rent so you have to get a job and you get you get assigned a job by the state i guess and they say you you get to be a bouncer and so you go work for bars which is fun because it's definitely european so you're id checking people but people who are 18 can come in right so you can go to the bar in 18 who cares so so you have to check people's ids and let them in during a set window so you only have a set amount of time to let people in essentially when the party's going on Um, and then eventually the the bar closes and people have to go home. So you're not checking people in anymore. It plays very similar to Papers, Please, which I know we have people who listen to our podcast that enjoy Papers, Please.
1: I like Papers, Please.
0: Or talk on our podcast to enjoy <laughs> Papers, Please. So if you haven't checked out Not Tonight and you like Papers, Please, I'd recommend checking out Not Tonight. It has very much similar Papers, Please type of anxiety that I get when I play the game where I'm trying to check through IDs as quickly as possible and not make mistakes. And you have to like look at driver's license essentially or whatever license that you're looking at instead of passports which is fun so you have to look at the cards the plastic cards as it were um so yeah that's what i've been playing recently not tonight so i watched somebody play the game a while ago, I think I either watched it on like one of those top ten videos on YouTube where they're like these top ten games that you have to play right now, or like if you like this particular niche of video games, this is the top ten games of those particular niche that you have to play right now. Or I watched like one of the YouTubers that I watch regularly, and they played it. Either or, I found out about it, so then I got it through a Humble Bundle and started playing it, and have enjoyed it it has been fun i've like i said i got it relatively recently so i'm not too far in it but it's been a, a good time so far
1: that sounds fun today we're talking about something that we actually kind of were talking about last week a little bit so it's, it's like a follow-up i guess you could say episode um so last week we covered the magnavox odyssey which was the first ever home video game console and today we are going to be talking about some of the early arcade games Uh, specifically some classic arcade games that are really kind of the the staples of the arcade industry this is going to be part of kind of a new little uh sub series i guess you could say where we're going to talk about three arcade games that are really important to arcade history and then in a few weeks we'll probably talk about three other arcade games that are really important to arcade history so we wanted to start off this one talking about three staples to the arcade industry um, and those games are pong pac-man and donkey kong so yeah, we're gonna talk about some classic arcade games. Uh, we'll we'll uh, talk about how well they did, and then uh, in a couple of weeks we'll follow up on that with some more classic arcade games. So Seth, memories of classic arcade games.
0: Uh, so for my memories of classic arcade games like Pac-Man, Pong, and Donkey Kong, which are the ones that we were talking about today. It's nice Ryan. So when I was a kid, these classic arcade games were still in the old bucket. They were were relegated to, you know, the back of the arcades that I would go to or they would be in older arcades that I didn't want to hang out in. Um, but they were and usually are cheaper than the newer games. So like if you wanted to play like a new like Time Crisis or something, you would have to pay like maybe a dollar But the Pac-Man game, you could probably get away with paying a quarter or 50 cents. So you could get more video games per your coin. It was like this old ratio that you had to figure out when you had, say, 15 quarters. Right. How do you divide your 15 quarters over the span of an hour? And how do you maximize your hour playing games that you don't necessarily hate? So that's kind of like, as a child, kind of how I was really introduced to them as fun games that were old and generally the arcade the systems felt old right they were usually there maybe in a roller rink or something and they'd been there since time eternium. now as an adult my more recent memories when the covid night before the covid 19 pandemic i would go to barcades and the same logic applies right so the newer stuff is usually more expensive in these barcades and the older stuff is cheaper. So if you want to play like Time Crisis, whatever, 10 now or whatever we're on, it would be like $4 because it's a new barcade so everything's inflated or whatever tokens that you have to buy at the bar or you can play pac-man for like a token so my same like price ratio like i'm like all right how much money do i really want to be spending on tokens today and what do i want to play and how long are we going to be staying here because i always i was like i always bought way too many tokens for There's one barcade in Boston that we went, not the one that we went to, the other one. Uh It's actually in Cambridge. Uh, it's called a 4 k and they are behind the freezer door of a grilled cheese restaurant.
1: Yeah. Uh, I think they're behind the freezer door of Roxy's.
0: Yes. Of Roxy's. Yep. So I always buy too many tokens when I go there. So I've been there a couple of times and they have like, uh, spend money at the bar to get like drinks or whatever. And like, I'm like, ah, we're going to be here for hours. I should get like 40 tokens or something. And then like, we're done after like an hour of playing games and we're like, all right, we're going to leave. And I have, like, this bucket of tokens left. So then I just, like, walk up to people and I'm, like, here. And I just dump my tokens into other people's buckets. And I'm just, like, whatever. This is for you now. So, yeah. uh, A4cade. And then we went to a barcade in Boston proper called Versus. And at Versus, they had a room... Where they had all the new stuff, and then they had a room where they had all their old stuff. So one of my more recent memories was that Zach and I went to Versus with our uh PAX east crew, and there was a pile of people in the new stuff room, and then there was like not a lot of people in the old stuff room. Yeah, I remember that. It was like the beginning of COVID. So like it was this like there weren't any case. There was, I think, one case in all of New England. So it wasn't like super big of a deal. We were still like like washing our hands and being kind of safe. Yeah, we were being prudent. So, but then we stuck to the, we stayed out of the room with all the people in it and we stayed in the old room and all the old games such as Donkey Kong. And I think that there's, even though when I was a kid, I always was wanting to play like the beat up games, which we talk about in episode 27, we talk about beat them up games. There's just something about like drinking a fine beverage at a bar and playing Donkey Kong with your beer or hard wicker and trying to avoid barrels and I feel like with add these games especially drive a lot of competitiveness right as a kid you really feel like so like I feel like as a kid playing Donkey Kong or Pac-Man you really feel like you have to beat it right or you have to do as well as you can and it there's like Kind of like almost like a push or like some like uh, spark to like try and be the best yeah. and get the highest score or whatever. But I feel like when you're two or three beers in, you don't care. You can just enjoy the game. Yeah, you know? that's true. What about you? What uh, what about, do you have any uh, fun memories of uh, the older classic arcade game? Yeah, so
1: I already talked about it in one of our other episodes, but there was a movie theater I used to go to. And at that movie theater, they had a Miss Pac-Man and Galaga machine, which was the oldest arcade game they had there. Um, and that arcade machine was broken. Um, so sometimes it would glitch out during the demo sequence and allow you to play uh, for a bit for free, which is very nice. In terms of the games we're talking about, Donkey Kong and uh, Pac-Man and Pong, uh, well, I didn't experience Pong until I was a little older and I picked up my first Pong home console, which was a, a clone console that I picked up called the Bagatelle, which is a very weird name and I haven't been able to find it ever since. But for Donkey Kong and Pac-Man, I used to play those. There was a, besides from barcades, there was also a lot of pizza restaurants that my my family would frequent. And um, there was a couple that my dad and I would go to. Sometimes we would either eat there or we would be picking up pizza and bringing it home for, you know, my brother and my sister and such. And there would be a Pac-Man machine in a couple of the restaurants we went to. And universally, there seems to be Pac-Man machines in every pizza restaurant that I've been to. And I'm not sure why. I think pizza restaurants are required by law to have pac-man machines that and laundromats in connecticut old laundromats that are family owned will have pac-man machines and i'm not sure why so today we're going to be talking a little bit about the history of some of these games Uh, we're going to start off with pong so to talk about pong we really have to talk about two other machines and that is tennis for two and space war so on october 18th of 1958 william hingenbottom A physicist who had previously worked on the first atomic bomb unveiled Tennis for Two at the Brookhaven National Laboratory's annual public exhibition in Brookhaven, New York. Uh, Tennis for Two was a game that was designed to be played on an oscilloscope, which for those who don't know, is a very primitive form of display. Basically, it shows you like, I don't even know how to describe it. They look like little laser lines, but you can manipulate the lines to do different things depending on the equipment you use. So the 1958 Tennis for Two, designed to be played on an oscilloscope and would allow a ball to be volleyed back and forth from one side of a displayed tennis court to another. Kind of sounds like Pong. However, it's from a... different perspectives so pong is kind of like from a top-down perspective this is almost like a cross-section perspective of a tennis court with the middle of the tennis court being in the center of the oscilloscope and the ball being volleyed back and forth so a few years later in 1962 steve russell demonstrated for the first time the game space war which is a very simple arcade game that featured two spaceships engaged in a dogfight it was played on the pdp-1 Which was a big old computer that was located at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. It had just recently been installed there, so Steve Russell decided to play around with the machine.
0: So you have Tennis for Two and you have Space War. These are two unrelated video games. Well, yeah, I guess video games, early video games. In fact, some of the first video games. They may have been unrelated, but what they were were they were examples of what video games were before the arcade industry was really built up and established. Video games were frequently very simple and often required very large pieces of technology to to even conduct them. Technology that generally only schools or uh, science research centers would be able to even afford. They were also almost always like shown off as a minor project that didn't have any real goal for any commercial success rather just to play with the technology that they were on so like the purpose of tennis for two was really to play with the oscilloscope not necessarily to sell tennis for two same with space wars it was really most most likely showing off how you can play with the technology And just essentially just dicking around is really what it was. (laughs) It wasn't until Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney, uh, who were founders of this newly formed Zizig Engineering, and they created their very first arcade video game. And that was Computer Space, which was a derivative of Space War, which Nolan had played previously on a PDP-6 at Stanford University. Computer Space played very similarly to space war uh, it featured two spaceships that could dogfight each other the game they ended up creating a system that was coin operated which was developed by nutting associates which Bushnell and Dabney both worked for nutting at one point in time they had the inside scoop so they just went to nutting associates and said can you distribute this through your systems and through your manufacturing and they said yes it sold poorly. Uh, It sold about 1,500 units and was a complete financial failure for the newly formed Zizig Engineering. So after computer space, Zizig went away. They instead incorporated themselves as a little company known as Atari Inc., which they incorporated in 1972.
1: Also in 1972, Bushnell attended a trade show where he watched a demonstration of the newly released Magnavox Odyssey.
0: Oh, man. Yeah. Did, who, who would have talked about the Magnavox Odyssey I don't know. if you were interested?
1: Classic Gaming Brothers did in episode 59. Mm. This is where Bushnell reportedly got the idea for what would become Atari's first first video game pong pong was almost entirely developed by an atari employee Alan Alcorn, who was actually previously an engineer at Sysig Engineering. He came with them over when they reincorporated as Atari. And Alcorn created Pong as a training exercise that Bushnell had developed. So Bushnell told Alcorn, hey, I saw this really cool machine called the Odyssey. I really want you to learn how to make games like this. So here's what I want you to do. So Alcorn did it. And Bushnell and Daphne thought it was great. They are actually incredibly impressed by the work that uh, Alcorn had done and it prompted them to find a way to market it to the public. So for those who've never played Pong, Pong features two paddles, left and right, and a ball that bounces back and forth. Players are trying to score points that are displayed on the screen by getting the opposing player to miss a volley. When Alcorn built the game, he built it using his knowledge of transistor-transistor logic. Like the Magnavox Odyssey, this wasn't based on a CPU. This was based on hard tech, so using a circuit board, with transistor logic. And he also decided to add features to the game that he thought made it more appealing. Alcorn included allowing the ball to be returned at different angles, depending on where you hit it. It also allowed the ball to increase speed as it bounced back and forth, which just made the game more hard. So he was adding a whole different level of playability that Bushnell was even anticipating him to make.
0: Which was all based on the original tennis game by Magnavox Odyssey. So I was actually watching someone play through some Magnavox Odyssey video games, and they booted up the tennis game. And I was like, wow, this is just like Pong. Little did I know that Pong is just like it. And sometimes brands do that where one brand popularizes an idea that another brand started and formulated. So like the original brand had the idea and brought a viable product to market, but then another brand just copies it and takes all the credit and becomes the more prominent one. For example, have you ever heard of a cookie called Hydrox?
1: I have not.
0: Well, I'm sure you've heard of its copy, the Oreo. The Oreo was based on a cookie called Hydrox, just like how Pong was based on a game called Tennis by, I guess, by whoever invented Tennis, but specifically (laughs) the Magnificent Odyssey. By the (laughs) French. So in August of 1972, Bushnell and Alcorn installed the prototype machine at a local bar. And according to anecdotal evidence, the prototype type began exhibiting some technical issues and not working the bar owner a guy by the name of bill gaddis contacted atari to report the issue of the malfunctioning machine alcorn himself went down to the bar and upon inspection it was revealed that the issue was caused by uh the coin mechanism and the I, the bucket that collected the whatever the currency was used probably like a penny those quarters oh quarters yep jeez in 1972 that's old that's like that's like a (laughs) salary going in and it was in fact weighed down with so many quarters it was causing the actual board to short out which i think i could see like so right it's anecdotal so it's like not necessarily they don't have pictures of it being weighed down i mean if it's if it's using some transistor logic to run the game then yeah maybe some weight on that particular board could cause the machine to short
1: they probably used a metal bucket to collect the coins so when the metal hit the metal there's a short
0: so after uh Bushnell heard, heard that there was so much money in the machine that it was breaking the machine he knew it's time to sell however they had previous failures like with computer space so Bushnell opted not to have the game license and instead decided to take manufacture in-house and manufacture it themselves. Because if you hire somebody and that fails, just do it yourself. And in 1973, the company filled 2,500 orders for Pong machines. By 1974, they sold 8,000. The 1975 home version of Pong was even more popular, with Sears reporting that over 150,000 units were were sold for the holiday season. Uh, Sears credited the game system as one of the most successful products of the time. It was also around this time that Pong clones were released, including a line of clone machines made by Magnavox, Coleco, and, in Japan, a little company known as Nintendo.
1: Now, funny you bring about Magnavox making Pong clones during this time. Because, Seth, in 1974, Magnavox sued Atari along with several competitors, including Allied Leisure Bally, Midway and the arcade distributor Empire, for infringing on patents for the video games played on a television screen. You see, Magnavox assumed they owned the entire patent and thus everything related to the concept of video games. Being played on the television screen.
0: They didn't care if that television screen
1: was in a bar. <laughs> That's true. In fact, more lawsuits were filed in 1975 against Sears, Nutting, William Electronics, and more. Magnavox was taking them all down. And Magnavox said if if we can't have a successful video game system, nobody can. <laughs> so essentially what happened was in around 1977, so a lot of this was going on while this whole court hearing was happening. Bears' patent for *The Odyssey* was ruled by a judge to constitute "quote unquote" the pioneering patent of the video game art, and held that the defendants' games as infringing, and decided to set a precedent that any video game where a machine-controlled video element bounced off a player-controlled element, violated the original patent. My understanding is around this time, there was also a settlement that Atari ended up reaching with Magnavox, and I assume they gave some money to Magnavox to basically make sure that they could still sell Pong. Um, A fun fact uh, with this lawsuit is it didn't end in the 70s. It actually continued up until the mid-90s, where Magnavox continued to sue people over paddle and ball type games like pong so the lawsuits did finally end in the 1990s
0: i, I think it's still kind of funny that way but if you if you see those paddle and ball type games you say it's K- pong you don't say it's oh that's the magnavox tennis game yeah
1: right for those interested the original patent that was whole root of this lawsuit was specifically a patent that was drawn by magnavox which shows a box that looks like a television screen with some dots on it connected to another box that has some dials on it.
0: And they say anything that looks like this is ours. It's true.
1: Um, Fun fact, Nintendo apparently joined at one point too, and they brought William Higginbottom to testify. (laughs) Anyway, moving on from Pong. So plenty of arcade games came out between Pong and this next game in 1980, but quite few of them made quite the impact that Pac-Man made. Pac-Man was released by namco of japan on may 22nd 1980 under the title pac man and we'll explain why pac-man changed to pac man in a little bit <laughs> namco began producing games in-house after acquiring the japanese division of atari in 1974 which was doing very badly company president masaya nakamura created a small development group and he specifically asked them to study the nec produced microcomputers to potentially create new games with one of the first people assigned to the division was 24 year old toro iwatani iwatani in 1978 had created namco's first game gb which was a commercial flop but helped put namco on the map and allowed namco to have a little place there in the growing arcade industry of japan
0: so the japanese market for video games was beginning to surge with popularity largely due to the success of taito's space invaders and atari's breakout Uh, Atari's breakout was in fact developed by Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. Iwatani was tasked with coming up with the next project and wanted to create something that he hoped would appeal mostly to women. Arcade games Iwatami felt strongly appealed more to men and thought that women would be an untapped demographic. So in 1979, he started spitballing ideas and at one point having Popeye in mind for the star of the game. The eventual design was reportedly inspired by his trip to a local pizza parlor for lunch. When one of the slices was removed from the pizza, he reportedly was inspired to create what we now know as Pac-Man, which... looking at Pac-Man, you can see that. He designed the ghosts of Pac-Man to be cute, inspired by the manga Obake no Quitaro, and also Casper the Friendly Ghost. He chose ghosts to be the main antagonists because they tended to be used frequently as villains in animations, which I think is also why you see ghosts kind of, even in like Mario, you got Boo and all that stuff. These ghosts have an underlying theme because they've all always have had this underlying theme of being the villain. He also chose to have the bonuses be fruit because fruit were often used as symbols for displays on slot machines, which, yeah, that makes sense, right? Especially since in Japanese arcades, slot machines were popular. And playing Pac-Man as a child, the bonus was always a little weird, right? Because it was like a cherry or like a a banana or something like that but as an adult looking back i'm like oh yeah no a cherry the sign of success in a slot machine
1: yeah exactly and and when you think about pac-man you can almost like i don't know about you but when i think about pac-man it like Falls into place with other arcade games like pinball machines and slot machines because it just like has that aesthetic to it, you know, that like neon 80s aesthetic that you just get from like a seedy casino.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: (laughs) So Iwatani worked to make sure that the ghosts would have unique personalities and track the player in different ways. This is evident by their Japanese names, which correspond to their personality traits. Shadow chases Pac Man, Speedy tries to get ahead, Bashful tries to zero in and Pokey alternates between chasing and running away. Their names were changed in English to Blinky, Pinky, Inky, and Clyde, which have nothing to do with their personalities. (laughs) They're just cute names. The sound effects in the games are also fun, because reportedly they were inspired by the sound that Iwatani made when he ate fruit. That waka 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 sound.
0: So when it was uh, first released in Japan, Puckman was a modest success. And though was overshadowed by the more popular Galaxian, which was also put out by Namco, which being that Namco put out both games and couldn't time their releases just (laughs) goes to show you that they just just wanted to push out stuff. In North America, however, the game was a nationwide success. In America, the n- game was changed to the name Pac-Man, reportedly due to the fear that people would scratch the P out in Puckman to make it look like an F. Which, to be honest, Americans would probably do that.
1: If you did that, that would be a very different video game.
0: <laughs> in the first year of the North American market, Pac-Man sold 100,000 units. And with those 100,000 units sold grossed more than $1 billion in quarters. That's a lot of quarters being taken in.
1: Jeez, that's like Scrooge McDuck level of quarters.
0: $1 billion in quarters is in fact $4 billion quarters. It uh, quickly overtook the then best-selling Asteroids as the best-selling arcade game in the country. In 1982, the units had tripled to 400,000 units with an estimated 25 billion dollars, and that's with a B, in revenue by 1983. Let's just do some quick napkin math, as I like to call it. You take a billion in quarters, and you divide that out by 100,000 units, you get $10,000 per unit. So that would be, on average, if you had an arcade somewhere in the United States, and you had a Pac-Man unit, Pac-Man machine, you're going to get $10,000 in that year from just Pac-Man, let alone the other 30 arcade machines that you're going to have in your your place. It also inspired a ton of knockoffs, as well as an entire line of Pac-Man merchandise. Because when something's successful, you need to saturate the market with it and just put it on as many things as humanly possible until people get sick and tired of it and it's no longer successful. Because that's what success is capitalism
1: one of my favorite pieces of unauthorized pac-man merchandise was specifically the vinyl pac-man fever which was a song performed by buckner and garcia who i don't think did much else besides pac-man fever the cool thing about pac-man fever though the the vinyl is that the insert for it has um some strategy guides essentially almost to play pac-man because there is a pattern that you can follow to successfully finish most of the boards next up is another company from over in japan in 1981 this company wanted to make sure that their name was heard in the game industry that company was nintendo now we spoke about nintendo in our nes episode and also in our super nintendo episode and also in our virtual boy episode and in our n64 episode we speak about nintendo a lot because they're kind of a big player in this little thing called video games as a reminder nintendo was originally founded in 1889 as a toy company specifically they produced hana fuda cards which were a type of playing card popular in japan uh, and they later went on to make some other games in 1977 after the release of their pong clone the color tv game nintendo decided to enter the video game market properly uh, after some fairly popular arcade machines such as computer othello and Radar Scope, nintendo was looking for a, the next big thing that could succeed in the much desired north american market you see nintendo was doing pretty well in japan they've been around since 1889 needless to say they were an established figure in japan so they really wanted to tap into this north american market because as you saw from pac-man this was a market that could make a lot of money so nintendo president hiroshi yamuchi approached a young designer who was named shigeru miyamoto and told miyamoto that he had the intention of having him design something that could replace the game Radar Scope. Essentially Radar Scope was marketed for a North American audience and did very badly. And they had a lot of leftover copies of Radar Scope that was unsold. So they needed something that they could put in these unsold cabinets of Radar Scope that was not Radar Scope. Miyamoto got to work on that and supervising him was Nintendo's head engineer at the time, Gunpei Yokoi, creator of the Game & Watch, and later the Game Boy and Virtual Boy. This game that they were developing, which is donkey kong was developed with a budget of one hundred thousand dollars or whatever the equivalency of that is in yen
0: and with the the strange fascination that the japanese have the original donkey kong was going to be based on popeye (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I almost made a joke in the, the notes that just said apparently every game in Japan was going to be Popeye at some point.
0: I think that's partly due because Popeye was very popular during that time but yes apparently they also wanted Donkey Kong to be based on Popeye uh though the license for Popeye fell through and gave Miyamoto the chance to come up with a new character he decided to come up with an idea of Donkey Kong which was heavily inspired by Bluto who's the villain in Popeye and and King Kong of the 1933 film. Well, so you ha- he had this villain, right, based on Bluto, and he kind of still wanted a Popeye character, and he kind of wanted an olive oil type character, because at the end of the day, he may not be licensing Popeye, but it's going to be kind of Popeye. <laughs> So he came up with this girlfriend-type character to be captured by Donkey Kong, who would be kind of like olive oil, and a hero-type character who would be a carpenter, who would save her and kind of be like Popeye. As the game was designed for North American market, Yamamuchi wanted the game to have an English name, and so there's a lot of stories about how Donkey Kong was a re- was finally picked, but the most accepted version of how Donkey Kong became Donkey Kong was that Miyamoto took a Japanese to English dictionary and looked up stubborn gorilla or stupid ape and correlated it back to Donkey Kong.
1: So... As Radar Scope had all these unsold units, the board was restructured for Donkey Kong, and the final game was programmed by a number of different technicians, mostly because Miyamoto had no programming skills himself. A build was sent to Nintendo of America for testing, and initially the sales team were really apprehensive. So the style of game was incredibly unique for the time, with most games pretty much being a variant of a maze game or a shooter game. You didn't have games like Donkey Kong, which were would be what we would call a platformer however that term wasn't even around for games of this nature and um in early marketing they called it a climbing game because that's what you're doing is you're climbing uh despite the apprehension from the sales team in america minora arakawa head of nintendo uh uh, nintendo us's uh operations lobbied on behalf of the game with a strong belief that it would be successful nintendo of america decided to go along with it uh, but they needed to come up with some names for these characters. So they named the girlfriend character Pauline after Nintendo warehouse manager Dom James's wife. And the Carpenter character was named Jumpman. So it would be popular to brand names of the time, such as the Walkman and Pac-Man. Jumpman was, of course, later changed to Mario.
0: Which spawned a series of games in his own right. So imagine what this world would look like without Popeye. Or imagine what this world would look like with Popeye. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Super Popeye sixty
0: four. <laughs> like imagine if they kept that license and made Jumpman Popeye Man. So uh in order to test the the product of the market without going full distribution, uh they chose a, a couple of bars in Seattle, Washington. Within the first week, the game saw thirty dollars a day, which is about hundred and twenty plays a day, which is. For a day worth of playing game, it's a pretty decent amount to the point where the bars that got it requested additional units of Donkey Kong so that more people can play Donkey Kong at once. Arakawa began to manufacture electronic components in Redmond, Washington because shipments going from Japan to Washington was just taking too long to meet the demand for the units. After the successful test in Washington, they went to market and sold an initial 2,000 units. And by October, the game was selling 4,000 units a month of an arcade cabinet, which are going to be expensive because they're commercial. And by June of 1982, they had already sold 60,000 units overall, and have which those units have would have earned $180 million in quarters. In its second year, the game made another $100 million. So it remained as uh, Nintendo's top seller into about mid of 1983, which was a, a pretty decent run for it, which in 1983, the video game market kind of collapsed. Mario Brothers got released. So there were a couple of things pushing it out of its limelight. But the, ga- the game Donkey Kong did successfully pull Nintendo out of financial ruin so that Nintendo could survive the video game crash and still be making video games today. With Jumpman. With Jumpman. Who is not Popeye?
1: No, who is not Popeye. But could have been. So that is our arcade classic arcade games so seth and i will be talking more about different classic arcade games sometime soon we'll probably pick a couple of uh really popular ones and give the history of those maybe or really
0: unpopular ones
1: or maybe on really unpopular one. Or maybe a maybe. popular
0: one and an unpopular one.
1: Ooh, maybe we'll talk about uh, Space Invaders. Maybe we'll talk about Asteroids. Maybe we'll talk about Breakout and how Steve Jobs was assigned to work on that and he gave all the work to Steve Wozniak and ripped him off for a whole bunch of money and used that money Ooh. to start Apple.
0: Or Kubert. What's going on with his nose?
1: Anyway, so uh, we thought we'd start off with three games that are actually a lot more related to each other than I think I realized. Because they all kind of tie back to each other and also Popeye
0: (laughs) and tie back to the Magnavox Odyssey. So let's uh, wrap up this episode with talking about games that we'd rather buy, wait, or pass on.
1: That's right. I'll go first. The game I want to buy, wait, pass on is a game called No More Room in Hell 2. No More Room in Hell 2 is the sequel to, you guessed it, No More Room in Hell, which was a game created by Lever Games, originally in 2011 as a mod for Half-Life 2, and it was later released as a standalone title on Steam in 2013. The game is a multiplayer co-op horror survival game where you have to kill zombies. I'm really bad at No More Room in Hell. Uh, In fact, I struggled with the game for a couple of reasons. One being that at the time I was playing it, which was in late 2011 when it was uh, a new mod and also in early 2012 or so i was playing it with my friends and at the time despite the game being fairly popular there weren't a lot of available servers for us to just join and we were inexperienced at hosting servers because all of us had crappy internet we we did manage to host a couple of servers ourselves and uh play the game a little bit what ended up happening was we would get killed by zombies very quickly because we were bad at it so no more room in hell is kind of cool in the sense that there it does have kind of a realism element to it besides the zombies you can actually play the game without a hud um so that when for example your character shoots something and you need to reload if you hold the reload button your character will open up like they'll take out the clip and they'll count how many bullets are left and they'll say oh i have like four full bullets left in the clip and then they'll put the clip back in the gun Kind of a cool little method of uh, of playing the game because then you really have to rely on, on your own knowledge of maybe how many bullets you have left when you're struggling to find bullets in a zombie infested world. Another thing that can happen is infection. So if your character is bitten, there is a chance of them becoming infected and turning into a zombie. It doesn't happen right away, but it is a, a probable chance and you're usually identified that it will happen in the sense that your like screen gets a little wonky. Um, So a fun story about No More Room in Hell 1 is that I was playing it, and we were trying to survive in this house. We were on the second floor of the house, and zombies were coming in. And uh, we were shooting at zombies that were coming in from downstairs, and uh, one of my friends did not notice a zombie coming in through one of the windows. And it grabbed him, and it bit him on the neck. And I knew in the game that there's a chance of infection. I don't know if he knew in the game there was a chance of infection, but I did. So he came back up the stairs after we handled the zombies downstairs. And he said, oh, I got bit, but I'm alive. And I said, that means you're infected. And he said, what? Said, means you're infected. So I pulled my gun out and I pointed it at him. And he said, I'm not infected. I said, no, you're infected. He said, Zach, I'm not infected. I promise. And I said, can't take any chances. And I pulled the trigger. As I pulled the trigger, my other friend who was playing with us walked in front of me. And I killed both of them. (laughs) in one shot so that is my fun memory of no more room in hell
0: why haven't (laughs) we played this game
1: I don't know. We should play it. I own it. I mean, I think it's free because it sure. was originally a mod, but it's available on Steam as a standalone title.
0: I feel like you should have just shot him. You shouldn't have had a conversation with him.
1: He couldn't talk me out of it. I was going to shoot him. It was funny because I shot my other friend who was not infected. <laughs> to this day, the infected friend swears he was not infected. But guess what? I didn't turn into a zombie that day. <laughs> I that's did actually true. eventually later because I got killed by zombies, but that's a different story. Anyway, the sequel looks a lot of fun. Uh, I'm I'm probably going to buy it or get it. Uh, when it's available um, i'm always down for killing zombies in in a multiplayer setting i loved what they did with the first game i'm sure they can looking forward to it i will uh follow up on it as it is in development um it doesn't have a current release date or planned release date so i'm gonna put it down as a probable buy
0: one of the things that i am excited to buy wait or pass on is a game called prison simulator i don't know if i've talked about this game before and if i have it's been 60 episodes so pardon me uh, it was developed by a company called baked games And you play as a prison guard in a prison and you have to make sure that the prison is managed well and that at the same time you have to there's like a respect bar for both the prisoners and the guards so you have to make sure that i guess you have to make sure that the guards and the prisoners respect you and you kind of like balance that because if prisoners if so if guards don't respect you then you get made fun of in the locker room and if prisoners don't respect you you get shivved in the closet (laughs) you have to carry out duties of being a prison guard such as Counting prisoners with a clicker and rummaging through their mail looking for syringes or or needles, I guess. I've been playing the demo. The demo is available on Steam for free. It is going to be announced soon when it's going to come out. Um, It's to be determined. But they definitely have a playable demo, which is fun. I would prefer a game be released as a demo that could have a, as long of playtime as you want versus being released into early access and being in that state of demo and then eventually getting released. Least, like i just prefer having them develop the game while it's in a demo state versus in an early access state my personal opinion but it's 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 fun i've i've played a little bit of it uh i think i'm gonna put it down as a wait for now until i play a little bit more of the demo to see if i if i really jive with it and really like playing it or if it's just it's fun to just i guess just stick around in it but it's a it's an interesting concept and that's it that's it. That's all she wrote. That is That is going to be our episode 60, where we talk about classic games, which, to be honest... Classic arcade about- games. Classic arcade games, which are also we always talk about classic
1: games. We are the classic gaming brothers.
0: That's true, but I feel like we should have like pong I feel like Pong, Pac Man, and Donkey Kong should have been earlier in our episodes. But I guess I mean we we do our own thing. Yeah. Well, anyway, that was it. Zach, you want to bring us home?
1: Let's say you want to contact us, listen to us, and support us. Well, guess what? There's plenty of ways that you can do that. If you want to contact us, you can reach out to us via our. Email that's classic gaming brothers at gmail.com or classic gaming brothers at classic gaming or zach at classic or seth at classic Any of those would work, any of those go to the same address because they all go to the same inbox uh, and we will get back in touch with you when we get your email send us any information that you would like if you have some suggestions on some classic arcade games or some games or topics that you'd like us to cover guess what we check our email and we look exactly for that so send us something and who knows you'll get a probably get a shout out in the episode when we uh, do that episode because we're always looking for topics to talk about another thing that will happen if you send us some ideas or maybe some criticism or some thoughts on the podcast is you'll be automatically entered into a chance to win a free video game from a list of video games that seth That he will provide for you. Also, you'll be entered into the chance to win. Uh, a voicemail, uh, or not a voicemail, but the uh, chance to have our announcer from our Christmas episode do a voice message on your home answering system or on your voicemail box, which is probably more likely for you to have. So reach out to us. We're always looking to hear from people. Uh, you can also visit our website and contact us through the website because uh, we have a contact form on the website. You fill out that form, and all that information will go to our inbox. It's all connected to the same place, so we'll be able to get in touch with you there. Uh, now, if you want to listen to us, well, you're already listening to us, so you win. All right, on to the next. Now, I'm just joking. But if you do want to continue listening to us or if you want other people to listen to us because you want to tell three friends, one of the best ways to support us is to tell three friends. You can tell them to listen to us on all the major podcasting applications because we're available on everything. I'm talking about Amazon. I'm talking about Pandora. I'm talking about iTunes. I'm talking about... Uh, <laughs> Spotify. That's right. We're on everything. So uh, give us a listen. Well, you're already listening, but tell your friends to give us a listen. Tell three friends because telling three friends is the thing to do because that's the number one way to support us. And that's right. This is how I segue into telling people how to support us because if you want to support us, there's plenty of ways to do that. Uh, again, tell three friends or follow us on our social media. We have a Facebook, Classic Gaming Brothers, Instagram, Classic Gaming Brothers, and Twitter, CG Brothers Pod. We also have a Twitch, Classic Gaming Brothers. Uh, check us out. Subscribe, like, follow, ring bells, do all those things. Check us out on YouTube. We sometimes post videos on there, but like just replays from our Twitch and episodes of the podcast, nothing really super exciting. But yeah, check us out. We're always willing to, uh, we're always happy to get new followers, get new fans. Uh, you can also buy our merch. We have some merch on our website. We have a t shirt and a mug with our face on it. Our faces, rather, not just our collective face. That'd be funny, though, if we did like the average of Seth and my face and put that on a t shirt. We'd probably look mostly the same because we are related. So that's all the ways you can reach out to us and do everything and support us. We always appreciate your support. Don't feel like you have to buy anything. Um, if you just want to have a piece of our merchandise, go right ahead. And that's it, that's everything. Alright, am I forgetting anything, Seth?
0: Don't play games like my brother.
1: And don't play games like my brother.
0: I've been Seth.
1: And I've been Zach.
0: And we've been the Classic Gaming Brothers.
1: That's Waka Waka Waka. (laughs) Waka 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 Waka. Waka 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 Waka.